0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
2: NPR. We should warn you before you listen to this podcast, it's about the organized white supremacy movement. This episode includes descriptions of violence and racial slurs unbleaped.
3: Hi, I'm Tom Metzger, your host for Race and Reason the number one show of its type on cable access TV throughout the United States. In
2: 1984, a white supremacist named Tom Metzger launched a television show that came to air on public access channels in more than 60 cities across the US.
3: Lots of people writing, but not too many people fighting. And thank you out there. And remember, free speech, Whitey.
2: Metzger had once been the head of California's Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. But by the early 80s, across America, the Klan's membership was declining. Metzger saw the writing on the wall and left the KKK.
4: I felt that uh, they didn't have the ability to reach a sizable amount of the American public, quite public. And uh, I felt that the actions of the Klan were passe. It was time to put it to bed.
2: Metzger's still around, he's still racist, and he still actively promotes a racist agenda. Despite that, we decided to speak to him. Because in the 1980s, Metzger played perhaps the most important role of anyone in charting the direction of the white supremacist movement in America. Metzger was always thinking about how the movement should evolve to gain broader acceptance among regular white Americans. And what he did then explains a lot about where we are now. Back in the early 80s, Metzger was looking for new ideas and new blood. So he opened his racist umbrella wide.
4: At first, the traditional racist groups rejected the skinheads. But I took them on. They were young and they were strong and they had guts. All we had to do was educate them, send them in the right direction. And uh, so I became known as the godfather of
3: these skinheads. Well, just who are the skinheads? Where do they come from?
2: By 1988, news reports across the country were warning Americans about a hate movement that was ensnaring their children. There
5: are disturbing signs that racism is once again taking hold in America, especially among our
0: young people. Disenchanted teenagers from city streets, they call themselves skinheads, are now being recruited by old-line white supremacists.
2: They describe these young racists as fringe degenerates with weird tattoos, shaved heads, and a dangerous new gospel.
5: Skinheads, hardcore young white Americans who preach racial hatred through violence, may be the most frightening phenomenon of all.
2: The news media may not have portrayed neo-Nazi skinheads in a flattering light, but for leaders like Metzger, any coverage was good. He wanted the movement to go national. And the biggest boost he could wish for was when daytime talk shows came knocking. It was a mutually parasitic relationship, a ratings bonanza for the shows, and a platform that neo-Nazi skinheads never could have imagined.
0: That's when people started to pay attention to this thing. It was, like, real. It was a coming out, so to speak, of that movement.
2: From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Odette Youssef, and this is Motive. Boots to Suits.
6: I actually, for a long time, thought that through the process of conversation, I could... Break down barriers of, you know, racism or homophobia or ideas that people had that were, you know, discriminatory toward other people.
2: From the very launch of her nationally syndicated show, Oprah Winfrey tackled some of the topics that Americans still struggle to discuss. She spoke with WBEZ for the Making Oprah podcast in 2016. And it was the revelatory moment with the skinheads,
6: actually, on the show that I realized the power of the
2: platform. In February of 1988, Oprah invited racists from California into her Chicago studios. One of them was Tom Metzger.
4: They called me on the phone and set it up, and uh, they'd fly me out there, pay my way, and put me up in a hotel.
2: Metzger's monthly newspaper chronicled the event with a full-page photo spread. In one picture, Metzger's son and some of his skinhead followers are marching through Chicago's O'Hare Airport, Sieg Heiling. In another, the caption claims to show two of Metzger's associates in a limo, smiling on their way to, quote, an exclusive party of 25 racists in Chicago's Best hotel. All over Chicago, other people connected to the skinhead scene were getting ready for Oprah, too. One of them was David Spears, an anti-racist activist.
3: You know, the morning comes and Oprah sends a town car
0: to come and get me.
2: Oprah's producers filled the audience with people that shouldn't have been in the same room. A man in an actual Nazi uniform, a Jewish business owner. Anti-racist skinheads, neo-Nazi skinheads. Somehow... David Spears was seated in the middle of a cluster of white supremacists.
3: It was very unnerving to be surrounded by these people who all know my name,
0: all know who I am, and that I actively organize against them. So to put me surrounded by them, it was not comfortable. Four,
5: three, two, one. We're on the air. Okay. Okay.
2: As the show began, tensions were already high.
5: Hi, everybody. My guests today call themselves skinheads. They say their heads are shaved for battle and that they must save the white race from
2: communists, from homosexuals,
5: from capitalists, blacks, and Jews. Even
2: their music. The first panel on stage was from the youth arm of Tom Metzger's organization called the Aryan Youth Movement. It was five skinheads and Metzger's son, John.
5: Let me ask you this. Do you believe that only white people created this country?
3: White people have built a majority of the things, uh-huh. the great things. You could tell by all the great civilizations, Rome and Greece, and, and all the great civilizations that we have, and the languages, and our art, and our music.
5: Rome and Greece, and Egypt, and Africa. Who, well, who could they?
2: Two chairs down from John Metzger was his second in command at the Aryan youth movement a lanky skinhead named Dave Mazzella.
7: Dave, you
5: say
2: what? (laughs) Please please let him speak. Please let
5: him
7: speak. You know, you look at everything, all the great poets and all the the music writers and, you know, builders, great architects who are white, you know. Blacks, they still live in the jungles of Africa, you know, come over here. White
2: people teach these people everything. The show is about 40 minutes long, and from the start, it's hard to watch. Here was the world's most successful black woman in media, giving these young racist know-it-alls time and space to air their nastiness. Everything they say seems meant to diminish who and what she is and to provoke her. The tension in the studio really starts building, though, when Oprah turns the microphone... To audience members,
3: That's a ceremony.
5: you know what I don't understand? Why do why do you all feel that you're better than us when it's all over? It all over, hey, we all matter. That's all, not an issue here. It's one. You, because I'm black, you will not not have a choice to not to want to sit with me. You're gonna have to sit with me, cause guys.
2: After a black woman in the audience speaks, Oprah turns the mic to a skinhead who is sitting in front of Tom Metzger.
5: You said, let me, let, I, I
2: just heard what you said. You just said,
5: I don't sit with monkeys. You think because she's black, because I'm black, we're, we're, we're monkeys? Is that?
4: That's a proven fact.
5: That's a proven fact? <laughs> it's a proven fact that I'm a monkey?
2: Could
7: be. But,
4: you
2: know, <laughs> Oprah tries to defuse the moment by abruptly turning to a man decked out in a Nazi uniform. That devolves into a shouting match between him and another audience member. The show goes on. We'll talk to jailed skinhead leader Clark Martell when we come back. Back in a moment. Clark Martell, the man who many believe was the patient zero of the organized neo Nazi skinhead movement in America. Clark, at this point, was in jail awaiting trial for brutally attacking Amy Strickland. But even from jail, Clark was given a platform on Oprah's nationally syndicated show.
5: We have Clark. Martel, who's on the phone. Clark is in jail right now. Uh, Clark, what happens when you try to leave the group?
4: Uh, I'm not going to talk at all about uh, any cases that are pending right now against me.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: What I wanted to talk about, though, mainly is, uh, first of all, I think that the struggle we're facing here in the United States and worldwide is not so much
2: one against Clark uh, shared his vision for what America should be on Oprah's show, a white fascist state.
4: And the whole idea behind it, the skinhead movement is nationalism. Oh. And the only basis for nationalism is race. That's the solid base nationalism. for nationalism because that is your culture, that is your society, your art. Everything that you are is your race. Okay. If you don't stand by your race, and you don't stand by anything.
2: Okay, that's Clark oh, right. Martell from jail. Oh. Yes.
4: First of all.
2: But Tom Metzger knew that most Americans wouldn't get behind fascism. He was the real leader of the racists on the Oprah Winfrey show that day. Even if he didn't dress or talk like a skinhead or Nazi, in his three piece suit, Metzger shared a more populist message designed to appeal to a more respectable public.
3: This is a white civil war against the elitists in Washington and the the traitors and the fifth column in Washington. And these people. Yeah, I was pretty good at what I did.
4: And most of the people that had these shows, they knew it i get my little thing in there. i get my little spiel in there.
3: Look, we put the system on notice and your bosses that they'd better start listening who to the white workers in the streets because we're going after the, the governor, system. The right blacks are a side are issue. And it
4: got through to a lot of people, whereas the jingoism, right-wing, racial, you know, hang-the-digger stuff wasn't going. I was able to get through to people.
2: As you watch, you realize what the problem is. Oprah seems ill-prepared to challenge the racists' lies and gaslighting. Instead, she relies on audience members and a couple of experts who join the show later to do that. But it's not equal airtime, and it appears to present the two sides as equally legitimate. Okay, you wanted to say what? Yes.
3: Yeah, my name is David Spears, and I'd like to speak about—these people are denying— they violence, okay?
2: In the audience, anti-racist activist David Spears had been trying to get Oprah's eye the whole time. He was seeing the imbalance and knew that viewers at home were losing the thread. The main
3: thing is, not that they're skinheads, but that the skinheads are allied with Tom Metzger, that they're allied with Lineberger here, the SS Action Group, the American Nazi Party. So it's not some skinhead gang running around that you got to worry about. It's a whole? I started pointing out the white supremacists in
0: the audience and calling them by their name.
3: It's a whole national network of white supremacists. That's the dangerous thing. Not that your kids shave their heads and listen to some wild music and get in fights. These people would be Nazis if they they wear a suit and tie like Metzger. They were getting very upset while I was talking. You're right about one thing. We are in a white civil war. A white civil war. And Washington is the target. It's the creeps on Wall Street and Washington of our own race. We don't blame the blacks. I like to say, and also these people say that we're against nationalism. I support black. Nat- sit down,
5: sit down. I'll take a break. I'll be right back.
4: Hello, mother. Hello. We're the Cinnamon Toast Crunch
3: bakers. I know. Of course.
6: During a commercial break, I saw them signaling each other with their hands making signs and saying, yeah, get her, and that kind of thing. I went, whoa. I think I'm exposing them. I think I'm showing them and their vitriol and their dark side and trying to get them to see a different point of view. And they are using me.
2: It was close to the end of the show. Viewers had watched nearly 40 minutes of personal attacks and unvarnished racism. Uh, well, I just want to tell you what happened during the commercial break. The cameras showed four of the six panelists' chairs empty, as were several seats in the audience.
5: We asked, uh, we asked our friend Mr. Monkey come in over here to leave. And uh, some other people followed him. The, the rest of his supporters uh, followed him. This has been somewhat out of control, I would say. And uh, I will tell you that in all of my years of doing this, I have never seen such or felt such evilness
2: and such hatred
5: in all of my life.
2: As she closed out the show, Oprah looked defeated.
5: Those of you who've uh, bared with us and watched today, I thank you very much. Thank you.
6: I went to the producers after that show and said, this is it for me. I will not be used by anybody again for presenting darkness in the world.
2: Eventually, two of the neo-Nazi skinheads from that infamous episode left the movement. Oprah had them back on the show more than two decades later. And they confirmed for me that they used that tape and that show
6: to recruit other members for their organization. I could feel that happening. That's what the signaling was.
2: In Metzger's newspaper that came out after the show, a giddy headline read, Oprah invites skins slash AYM for Aryan youth movement. Then, quote, AYM claims victory.
4: Well, I got the, got the word out of what we're talking about and that we weren't embarrassed to talk about it. And it got it out all over the country.
2: So you got a lot of mail. 14-year-old Christian Picciolini had skipped school to watch the episode at home. And to him, the show was not a train wreck.
0: I was struck by it. It was a powerful moment to finally see what I was newly a part of being legitimized. And it made me very proud that that was what I was a part of.
2: What did that do for the movement, those daytime TV shows?
0: I think it it put the movement on the map.
2: Neo-Nazi skinheads were all over the daytime talk shows. Geraldo, Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, Montel Williams, Jerry Springer... But Christian said the Oprah show was a turning point for the movement.
0: What that did was propel them forward to have thousands of people who now wanted to look like that, act like that, be angry like that.
2: Throughout this podcast, Christian has been working with me to uncover how young people are lured into the white supremacist movement. For him, seeing racist skinheads on daytime TV was part of it. At this point, Christian was kind of the last man standing of Chicago's organized neo-Nazi group, Cash. But this moment, a moment when skinheads were getting national attention, planted the seed of an idea.
0: I saw it as an opportunity to grow. That was right around the time that I would have been kind of thinking about taking over, and it was a moment where I saw this as not just a local initiative, but a national initiative and a movement that had been growing. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
0: When Clark went to prison, that's when I got the key for the RV for the Romantic Violence Box.
2: When Christian Picciolini was 15 years old, his hero, Clark Martel, went to prison. Clark had arguably started the first neo-Nazi skinhead crew in America. It went by cash and also by the name Romantic Violence. For Christian, getting the key to the Romantic Violence post office box felt like Clark was anointing him as an heir.
0: Oh, it was still... Very young. So I was trying to make him confident that I was taking care of the P.O. box, that I was responding to people. If anybody would communicate with him, I would kind of transcribe those letters and sending things out on his behalf.
2: Christian was also corresponding with Clark in prison. They'd write letters back and forth. Often, Clark's would include drawings.
0: Clark was a kind of a prolific uh, illustrator, uh but the drawings that he would send back to me were of kind of these lewd images of skinhead women. Uh, Sometimes they were naked. They were almost always pornographic and, and, you know, in nature.
2: Despite the profound influence that Clark had had on Christian's life, Christian never really knew Clark well. After all, Clark was jailed only about six months after he recruited Christian. Over time... The letters started to tarnish Christian's view of his hero.
0: He had a very dark side to him. Uh, I started to suspect that he was not mentally well. And I wrote to him for a couple of years, um, you know, probably a couple of dozen letters back and forth to each other, until I started to become really embarrassed to write to him and then I stopped.
2: Christian distanced himself from Clark, but he still saw value in resurrecting what Clark had started in Chicago.
0: Nobody said, you're taking over for Clark. Nobody said, you've inherited the throne. They just weren't around, and I said, I'm going to do this.
2: Christian started rebuilding the neo-Nazi skinhead group from his parents' basement. It was cash 2.0.
0: And it was file cabinets, a desk, a bed... Um, You know, a small apartment that was essentially my office for running this movement. And it was very much a Nazi frat boy dorm room with neon beer signs and swastika flags.
2: Christian also formed his own band called White American Youth. Later, that band dissolved and he formed another one called The Final Solution, the same name as Clark's band from years earlier.
0: People were coming to my concerts and things like that. And I started seeing people, like, be attracted to me. I started to kind of enjoy the power, and I started to organize.
2: And he started to recruit. The kids Christian went after were younger than the crew Clark had assembled a few years earlier. 14, 15, 16. He learned how to customize his sales pitch to them.
0: If they were somebody who was bullied, it was about, we can protect you. If they were somebody who had been a victim of crime, it was about spinning. You see who did that to you? It was because of, you know, the blacks or the Jews or whatever. Mostly, I got to say, though, it was about finding people who just needed a place to belong. We provided that family.
2: And in the late 80s, Blue Island, Illinois was a perfect place for Christian to start recruiting.
0: It was demographically changing. Blue Island itself was surrounded by neighborhoods that were predominantly black or predominantly Latino. And there was this kind of inherent fear of what you would call back then, like there goes the neighborhood kind of feeling.
2: For two decades, black residents had been leaving the city of Chicago and moving to the south and southwest suburbs. By the late 80s, Tension over those changes manifested in the school system. Blue Island was in a school district that encompassed several suburbs. In 1988, Blue Island residents won most of the seats on that school board and redrew the district boundaries. The result was that hundreds of students, mostly black, would no longer go to the Blue Island High School. Instead, those students would be bused to schools in the other suburbs— The Blue Island board members who did this made no bones about it. They said it was the only way to keep the school from becoming majority black. This was the backdrop against which Christian was recruiting.
0: So I think that there was this inherent fear of change, which made recruiting and even acceptance of these type of -of out-of-the-box racist ideas uh, a little bit more appetizing for people. We made them afraid that they were going to lose that whiteness, that pride, if they didn't act up. And that they would find paradise if they did. It was kind of easy to spot, at first, kids who we thought would be easy to recruit. After a while, we didn't have to do that anymore. We started to to look so cool, I think, to the people in the area that they started to kind of gravitate towards us.
2: And then the new version of Cash started growing on its own.
0: We started throwing the best parties. We had concerts in the backyard. There were girls who wanted to hang out. And that became kind of the cool thing to do. Our parties were not all skinhead parties with guys wearing swastika flags. They were that, plus the quarterback of the football team, plus the nerdy kids, plus the stoner kids, plus the goth kid. Like, it was a click and we were trying to indoctrinate people from those groups.
2: Christians' commitment to the cause deepened. School stopped mattering. He'd get kicked out of one, then shuffled to another, until no school would take him anymore. His life was now cash, his white power band, and preparing for a race war. Tell me about the your personal stockpiling of weapons.
0: I started collecting weapons probably around the age of 16. I think it started out with a rifle that I bought at a gun show. We purchased some AK-47s, you know, a handful of them. I remember, you know, having thousands of rounds of ammunition for my semi-automatic AK-47, for my M1 carbine rifle, eventually then pistols, a sawed-off shotgun.
2: Christian bought them with a fake ID.
0: I actually had a backpack that was packed with, like, survival gear uh, that I could grab if I ever had to go on the run because I had committed a crime or if, you know, there was an insurrection that that sprung up that I would need to head for the hills for.
2: Another thing Christian did when he took over Cash was to bring it into the larger national neo-Nazi skinhead movement. When Cash began in Chicago, it was kind of on its own. But now there were skinhead groups all over the US, and they were joining up into national networks to grow the army of white warriors who'd fight together in the coming race war. Christian brought cash into the most notorious of those networks, the Hammerskins nation.
0: The Hammerskins were very much about like no drugs, no infighting, like you are the elite warriors of the white power movement. You're not like those other skinheads or those clans. You are the vanguard, the best of the best. And it was different than what Clark had done. So I saw that as an opportunity to like, yes, we're finally doing this. We're finally merging with this, this larger brand.
2: By the end of the 80s, neo-Nazi skinheads were recognized across the U.S. as a true menace to public safety and order. In 1989, the Anti-Defamation League, a Jewish group that monitors anti-Semitic and hate activity, reported that racist skinheads were now active in 31 states and numbered in the thousands. Their ranks had grown 50 percent, from 2,000 to 3,000, just in the prior year. They were responsible for a growing number of assaults on Jews, Blacks, Latinos, and gay people. And they were involved in multiple murders. Five in nineteen eighty-eight, another three in nineteen eighty-nine.
3: The crime took place here on Southeast 31st early Sunday morning. Three black men, all from Ethiopia, were sitting in this car talking. When one left to head for his apartment, another car pulled up, three young white men jumped out and began beating him.
2: In November 1988, 27-year-old Mulugeta Sarah was beaten to death with a baseball bat in front of his apartment in Portland, Oregon by three neo-Nazi skinheads. All three were convicted. What happened next was critical in the story of the American neo-Nazi skinhead movement.
4: i never been to Portland. I didn't know the guys who were involved. (laughs) And the whole bit, you know. But they figured a way of getting me.
2: After the criminal trial, the Southern Poverty Law Center, an anti-hate group, went after Tom Metzger and his son, John. The Metzgers ran war, the White Aryan Resistance, and its skinhead arm, the Aryan Youth Movement. The civil rights lawyers believed they could show that the Metzgers bore some responsibility for the murder of Mulugeta Sehra.
7: An example, I think, will illustrate better what I'm talking about.
2: Eldon Rosenthal was one of the lawyers working with the SPLC on the case.
7: In the classic situation of organized crime, if a mafia leader would say to one of his lieutenants, I sure wish we could get rid of so-and-so, and and the lieutenant with a wink and a nod goes out and murders so-and-so, the mafia leader would be responsible for the murder every bit as much as the guy that pulled the trigger. So that's basically the theory that we used against war and, and Tom and John Metzger.
2: To prove it, they had a key witness from inside the Metzger's operation. That was a skinhead named Dave Mazella. You might remember that name. Along with the Metzgers, Dave was featured on the Oprah show, and he was Tom Metzger's hand-picked leader for the Aryan youth movement. Dave testified that Tom Metzger had sent him to Portland with a letter of introduction to a local neo-Nazi skinhead group that included Syrah's attackers.
7: And he directly testified that he had been sent with real clear instructions to recruit these skinheads into the white Aryan resistance and that they would go into parks together and they'd pick on a person of color and they would assault the person. And after doing this a few times, that he really gained the favor and the allegiance of these young Portland disaffected men.
2: And lawyers made the case that that violence necessarily led to the murder of Mulugeta Gerasara. This was a civil suit, not a criminal one. The Metzger's weren't facing prison. But instead, they were facing the possibility of bankruptcy.
7: The judgment was huge, unprecedented.
3: Racist Tom Metzger, his son, and their fanatic white Aryan resistance
7: now facing damages of some 12 million dollars.
2: It was far more money than the Metzger's could ever pay. But the lawsuit achieved its goal.
7: We basically put the organization out of business and Metzger ceased being one of the faces of of white supremacy in the United States.
2: For Eldon Rosenthal, it was the case of a lifetime.
7: As the son of someone who escaped the Holocaust, I grew up Acutely aware of the tenuousness of civilization, and I became a lawyer because I wanted to be a part of that group of folks that protects civilization through the use of law.
2: One of the things Rosenthal remembers most clearly about the trial was meeting Mulugeta Sera's father a 60-year-old farmer who had flown from Ethiopia to Portland to hear the verdict.
7: And uh, he asked me to explain to him who had killed his son. And I asked him if he recalled when Mussolini's army had invaded Ethiopia in the 1930s. And I told him that the men that had killed his son were just like the men that Mussolini had brought. Ethiopia, and he understood then.
2: He understood that to mean that they were Nazis. Around this time, federal law enforcement was also turning up the heat on racist skinheads. The Department of Justice created a special skinhead task force in 1989. Later that year, it charged five Dallas Hammerskins with attacking Black and Hispanic people, and with vandalizing Jewish institutions. The next year, six Tulsa skinheads were charged with various hate crimes, and eight skinheads were indicted in Nashville. By the early 1990s, the high-profile indictments and the downfall of the Metzgers clarified one thing. The brazen violence, the outrageous displays on daytime talk shows, those weren't serving the movement well anymore.
4: I just told him, you're getting your ass kicked by the cops and everybody else the FBI. So you gotta do it a new way. We gotta get away from this.
2: Tom Metzger's organization may have been finished, but just as he had always done, he adapted. He started preaching a new message to those who are still listening to him. He told them to trade their boots for suits.
4: Look, grow your hair out, get a briefcase, go to college, join the police department, get into the government, get into the places where you can do us some good and forget the skinhead thing. They went to college, got a good job, got a career. They went in the military, they went in the police, they went into other areas of government and they're there right now.
2: In 2006, an FBI intelligence assessment warned about white supremacists infiltrating law enforcement. It mentioned something called ghost skins. Quote, "...those who avoid overt displays of their beliefs to blend into society and covertly advance white supremacist causes." Despite that, the FBI has never publicly acknowledged efforts to root out such officers or even to try to count them. Those efforts have fallen to civil rights organizations, online activists, and investigative journalists who sift through social media to uncover racists in our public agencies. Last year, the Center for Investigative Reporting found 400 current and former law enforcement officers in more than 50 agencies across the country were active in hate groups on Facebook. In the early 90s, just like Tom Metzger, Christian Picciolini was realizing that neo-Nazi skinheads shouldn't just change how they looked. They needed to modify their talking points.
0: We started to encourage people to go into the neighborhoods where racist white Americans lived and recruit them if they didn't see us as extremists.
2: So instead of talking about preserving the purity of the white race, the movement talked about securing America's borders. Instead of calling blacks inferior... It raised the specter of urban crime and black-on-black violence. Instead of talking about evil Jews and the Zog, a Zionist occupation government, it talked about a class of global elite controlling world affairs.
0: If we started to talk their language in terms of religion, there were Christian identity skinheads who were very good at that kind of stuff. If we started to talk to them about gun rights, there were kind of like your more militant militia folks who were very good at convincing people to come in because of that. If you were part of the Klan and and your culture was in the South, it was really easy to convince other racist Southerners who didn't want to see blacks starting to get prominence in their cities and towns. It was always about making people afraid.
2: The bulletin had gone out. It was time to blend in, to look like regular Americans, to act like law abiding citizens. But when they were in each other's company, neo Nazi skinheads didn't hide who they were. In 1992, Christian flew to Weimar, Germany with his white power band, The Final Solution to perform at an illegal neo-Nazi skinhead concert.
0: This next one, Salah's song, is uh, instrumental.
2: There, he met skinheads just like him, but from other countries.
0: Dankeschön, Deutschland. It was real now. It wasn't just this local thing. Even though we always had, from day one, forged these connections overseas, this made it real, we were now together. And I think that that was the first time that American white supremacists from the youth movement actually started to build those face-to-face alliances with their counterparts overseas.
2: But it was also in Germany that Christians started to have doubts.
0: After the concert ended, these 4,000 skinheads who were drunk, who were high on the music, who were amped up, then went into the town of Weimar, which is, you know, this historically beautiful kind of hamlet. They went out and they destroyed it. They started to, you know, accost townspeople. They started to damage property. They tried to flip cars and essentially, you know, terrorized this small town. And I got to say, that was one of the biggest instances where I, it, it suddenly didn't make sense to me why these, you know, proud white Germans were attacking other proud white Germans in the town indiscriminately and suddenly like things didn't jive for me anymore that was a really big question mark for me like they preached about protecting their homeland but they got drunk and then went out and destroyed it of course never found the courage to talk about it because you didn't do that you didn't You didn't seem vulnerable among your other you know fellow soldiers fellow warriors you just moved on you didn't question things
2: But Christian's doubts wouldn't go away.
0: You know, it's an illogical ideology. At some point, you question it. At some point, it hits a dead end, and you have no choice but to say, what am I doing? What have I done?
2: I have some questions, too. Next time on Motive. So you've spent years of your life dehumanizing black people and Jewish people, and preaching unimaginable violence against them. Why should anyone give you the time of day?
0: I don't think anybody should believe me, easily. I think that anybody who says that they spent their life hating and dehumanizing people, uh, and then have changed, uh, those people require a lot of scrutiny.
2: Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Odette Youssef. The producer is Colin McNulty. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Story consultant, Christian Picciolini. Our intern is Hannah Boomershine. Joe Dassault mixed the show. Original music by Stephen Jackson and Jesse Dukes. Special thanks to listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible.